But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. All of us, then, who are mature, should take such view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Uh, Philippians chapter 3 is where we'll be, where we'll be today. And uh, as you find your uh, Bible and as you get to that passage, can I remind you of the wonderful skill set of Kenneth Graham. Kenneth Graham wrote what book before it comes up? Can anyone remember from childhood? And? <laughs> That's also true. Wind in the Willows. I was thinking of Wind in the Willows as well as Swallows and Amazons. There's some great insight in both of those books. And I want to talk to you about Wind in the Willows. In Wind in the Willows, you meet these two great characters called Molly and Badger. Molly and Badger are having a conversation in Wind in the Willows about life under the ground and life above the ground. There's some great insights into the human heart from the character Molly and Badger. Molly says this to Badger, his friend. Badger, better to live beneath the ground. Why? When you put your head above, there's all sorts of trouble. It's more comfortable to live in the comfort of the ground, says Moldy to Badger. Now there's some profound truth in that statement. It is more comfortable to live beneath the ground, especially when you live in the real world. And you, when you live in the real world, a WhatsApp can be weaponized. When you live in the real world, you find that our culture is very hostile. You don't need to talk about politics. It can be anything from football to sexuality, to gender matters, or to Donald Trump. You just pick your topic and very, very quickly on Twitter, WhatsApp, social media, Facebook, if you still use that old thing, uh, just the human heart is exposed as somewhere of a very hostile temperament and tone and nature. 
It's tempting when that happens just to retreat to Netflix. It's tempting when that happens to pull up the drawbridge of your own home, whether it be a flat, a rental, or if you're trying to get on the property ladder. It's easier to live beneath the ground, just to keep your head down, just to keep your mouth shut, just not to speak up on anything, even on matters that you need to speak up on, that truth needs to be told on. It's safer, as Molly said, just to live beneath the ground. Now, why do I begin with the children's book? And why do I begin just reminding you of the hostile nature of the culture in which we live? Because back in Philippi, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church, a young church, an infant church, that has many of their ducks in a row, but is struggling with the reality of the hostile culture in which they were living. In the middle of this book, in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is saying, I want to remind you of what the cross-centered life looks like. I want to remind you that if you're a Christian, it means that you're living a cruciform, a cross-shaped life in terms of priority of the mind. Chapter 2, verse 5 is so important. It's about the mind, that as you have your mind transformed by the Spirit of God to the mind of Christ, you want to live a life following in the footsteps of Jesus. And it's all positive in chapter 2. I want you to shine like stars in a hostile world. I want to remind you of the mind of Jesus, and I want you to live as a church, chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, that's united, that's of one faith, that's of one hope, that's of one saviour. And here's a great example, the greatest example of what it looks like. His name is Jesus. And here's another one, his name is Timothy. And here's another one, his name is Epaphroditus. Live after these three examples. It's all positive in chapter 2. But then you get to chapter 3. And in in chapter 2, you have three positive examples. In chapter 3, you've got three negative examples. If chapter 2 is his, how to live a cross-centered, a cross-centric, a cruciform life, following Jesus, well, here are three groups of people that you meet in Philippians chapter 3 that are the very opposite of the positive examples you meet in chapter 2. We met last week in verses 1 to 11. They're on the screen here in 1 to 11. You met the Jewish Christians. Paul is saying you're tempted to live a life as if you can accrue enough, uh, gain enough, live good enough a life so that your enoughness will be your righteousness. Enoughness is is a modern word that's helpful for us to understand a Bible word, which is righteousness, a good enough standard of living so that you win God's approval. It's the the Judaizers, that's verses 1 to 11. Then you meet another group of people that we're going to look at today. They're the perfectionists. They were so-called Christians who said that we are so mature, we've reached what you can only dream of, Paul, and and we've attained it in our lives right now. Don't live for the future, you can enjoy it all in the present. And then you meet the third group of people in verses 17 to 19. They're struggling to work out where they belong. Is heaven here on earth or is heaven something in the future? Their appetites are disordered. We looked at the first group last week. We're going to look at the second two groups today. Because really, Paul is saying, chapter 2, positively, where's your focus? Where's your mind? Is your mind like the mind of Christ that you see sacrifice and service in the life of Timothy and Epaphroditus? Or is it chapter 3, Are you not living the cruciform, the Christ-centered life? And if you're not living the Christ-centered life, if you're not weighing up the worth of following Jesus, then here are three temptations, three patterns for life that you will be tempted to follow. 
You're tempted to think that you can live a righteous life yourself. That's the first group. And here's the second group and the third group. And it's a question, number one, of focus. It's all a question of focus, number one. Now, as we look at these two groups, I want to remind you of the power of positive thinking and the high effective uh, qualities of effective people. Stephen Covey wrote, there are seven habits of the effective person. He looked at the life of businessmen and women and said, if you want to live an effective life, there are seven principles. And it sold millions of copies and has been of great help to people. Covey is saying, really, it's important that you live a life of discipline with some certain skill sets. But here's a question that you all need to ask if you want to be an effective leader in your line of work. Where's your focus? Where's your focus? I mean, boys and girls learn it, hopefully in a safe way, not involving animals, when they experiment in their younger years with a magnifying glass. When you have a magnifying glass, there's someone laughing nervously, reflecting on something they did in their younger life on the front row. When you have a magnifying glass in your hand, you can channel the power of the sun and it can cause flames to begin and leaves to burn and fires can be set. Please don't do this. But also you can use the power of the sun on unexpecting little animals. And it can be used to very dangerous and deadly effects in those ways. Ask Dan if you want to know more. It's all a matter of focus when the power of the sun is uh, just uh, narrowed down and magnified on one set area. It's how lasers are formed. Okay, the power of light getting narrower and narrower and used to remove damaged cells and cancerous cells in someone's body. In verses 12 to 16, we've had a a group of Christians in chapter 3 who claim to have reached the perfection, the maturity that can be found only in Christ, completely in the future, that Paul's been talking about in chapter 3, verses 9 to 10. You can look through any period of church life, and there are certain groups of Christians in history who say, we don't struggle with sin anymore. We found the key to Christian living. We found the key to a sinless life. We found the key and we've grasped the goal that, Paul, you've only spoken about in embryonic form about the future of knowing Jesus and the power of his uh, fellowship with his suffering, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow, verse 11, to attain to the resurrection of the dead. You don't need to do that all in the future. You can enjoy that in the here and now. You can escape from the sin that's in the world and you can go and live in the wilderness. You can be a hermit or a hobbit with hairy feet and you can live a Christ-centered, pure life in the here and now. It's not future-focused. It's attainable in the here and now. This righteousness that's transformed on the inside can transform you on the outside in the here and now. Christ can be known fully and enjoyed and you can be better than those other Christians who struggle on a lower plane. They're claiming something in verses 12 to 16 that even the Apostle Paul who saw and experienced the transforming power of the gospel and the risen Lord Jesus, even something he did not attain, they are saying that we've got it. Verse 12, what does Paul say? Not that I have already obtained all this, talking about a relationship with King Jesus, Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already been made perfect or mature. Paul is saying there is a prize and it's future focused. We've enjoyed most of it 
but not all of it now. We know the Holy Spirit who dwells within our hearts. We have sins forgiven. We have righteousness with Christ. But in the future, in the better day, we will enjoy it without faith. We will see Jesus Christ with our eyes. I've not already obtained all of it. I've not been made perfect. I've not been completely transformed, but I will be. I've had a taste of it, but I will see a better day when I see Jesus Christ with my eyes. But the prize is not found in this life. It's now in a real measure, but not fully. Paul said that all through the book. You might like to turn back to chapter 1, verse 29. In chapter 1, verse 29, you see this key cornerstone for understanding the book properly, I think. It says, chapter 1, verse 29, For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, And so somehow to attain the resurrection of the dead. In other words, Paul is saying, Christians are not immune to difficulty, to pain, to tragedy, and to suffering, to trial or to temptation. Following Jesus is costly. Following Jesus is suffering before glory. Following Jesus is knowing in a real way, our sins forgiven, something of a transformed life, and yet there is struggle and difficulty. Christianity is not passive. Paul said that throughout the letter, chapter 1, verse 27. It's standing firm. Chapter 2, verse uh, 12, it's working out. Chapter 2, verse 16, it's running a race. And in our passage, chapter 3, verse 12, and chapter 3, verse 14, Paul uses this phrase, pressing on. So it's not sins forgiven, and then you go on a Christian sun sun lounger with your, your hands behind your neck. There's sins forgiven, knowing the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit in your hearts, knowing a future down payment of a joy-filled, Christ-centered reality, and yet there's working, there's standing firm, there's working out, there's striving, there's running, there's a battle to be fought, sin to be dealt with. And in this passage, Paul is saying, I press on. Now, this word press on has been used already in chapter 3 and in verse 6. In chapter 3, verse 6, where where Paul gets out his uh, spiritual CV to brag about, thinking it's going to be a mic drop moment. In chapter 3, verse 6, Paul uses the same word, press on, but he uses it in a different way, to pound, to limit, to pursue with hate-filled intentions the church of Jesus Christ. And he says, I wanted to push them into a corner. I wanted to destroy them. I wanted to pound them to an end. But then Jesus grabbed hold of me, And the very same sentiment that I can use to do harm to other people, to to limit, to transform, to pound, to pursue, to press into a mold, I'm now using that very same will for good in my own life. I want to press on following Jesus. I want to take my body, my whole self, and I want to pound and push it forcefully, intensely, in a focused way, but to follow Jesus. With all my limitations, with all my sin struggles, I want to focus on this one thing that's a person 
whose name is Jesus. He's, he's like a hundred meter runner. And verse 13 and verse 14 are saying, with this single focus gaze, I'm looking at one target, one aim, one goal, and it's a person. Forgetting what is behind verse 13 into verse 14. And straining, listen to that word, straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul is a very intense person. He's a very focused person in a laser-guided, magnifying glass using the strength of the sun sort of way. Verse 12, there are two take-holds. I grasp, I press on. Verse 14, I take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. So who's taking hold of what? This is a paradox that we saw already in chapter 2, verse 12 and verse 13 again, where we are at work, but God is enabling us to be at work. We are taking hold, but actually it's God who first took hold of us. It's God's initiative, not ours. So Christ, Jesus Christ, does not take hold of me because I took hold of him. That's the wrong way around. I take hold of Christ because he first took hold of me. God begins the work and he brings it through to completion. The, the good work that he began, he will bring through to maturity. That's what Paul's teaching us here. Christianity is not something you take up as a hobby. Not something you just take up on a whim or a fancy. It's the very opposite. It's when God reaches out in his grace and mercy and rescues you. Reaches down and saves you. Reaches down and draws you to himself. But it's hard. There's a scene in uh, Bunyan's excellent The Pilgrim's Progress where we meet Mr. Valiant for Truth. Mr. Valiant for Truth has a summons from a messenger and his water bottle in modern language, his pitcher, is broken at the fountain. And this is what Bunyan says about Mr. Valiant for Truth. The messenger said to me, I'm going to my father's house, said uh, Valiant for Truth, and though with great difficulty I am got here, yet now I do not repent of all the trouble I have been at to arrive where I am. My sword, said Mr. Valiant for Truth, I give to him that shall succeed me in my pilgrimage, and my courage and skill to him that can get it. My marks and scars I carry with me, to be a witness for me that I have fought his battles who now will be my rewarder. Here's the church at Philippi. They are struggling with the cost of following Jesus. Chapter 2 is all positive. Chapter 3 is three examples of temptations we face as Christians to take an easier route, to stay beneath the ground with moly, to avoid hardship and difficulty, to not count the cost of following Jesus. To opt out. And isn't that tempting at school? Isn't it tempting at sixth form and following? But Mr. Valiant for Truth says this. If you have no scars to show, then you haven't fought any battles. Watch out for teaching, says the Apostle Paul, where there are shortcuts to maturity without scars. Watch out for shortcuts to 
where life looks easier for following Jesus and, or following Jesus but without. Watch out for shortcuts like that, that don't include the call to stand firm, to work out, and to run a race. Watch out for calls like that. That's just the second group. But then here's the third group, very quickly, verse uh, 18 and following. Here's the third group, and it's an issue of belonging, not maturity. It's a group of people, verse 18, that brings tears to Paul's eyes, not because of false teaching, because of false practice. They're living in a very different lie, that, a way that's not following the cross of Christ. Look at verse 19. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Now this is a little bit confusing, but what appears to be going on is that their appetites are, are out of order, out of kilter, out of whack. They're captured in some way so that their mind, notice the importance of mind, chapter 2, verse 5, have a mind of Christ, chapter 3, verse 19, their mind, this group of people, is on earthly things. And so they're enemies of the cross. They seem to be captivated by materialism, by uh, worldliness, by pressures from the world all around them to conform. And so their appetites are not for Jesus, but they're for things of the world. And so there's a food picture. Who's Paul writing to? He's writing to a church in Philippi, this outpost of Rome. They were so proud that they were Roman citizens, they uh, bragged about being more Roman than those who actually lived in Rome. Families would have been tempted to conform. Families would have been tempted to honor Caesar rather than Jesus Christ. Would have been tempting for just to pursue a sense of ease and keep uh, your workplace in order and pursue things that made your family life more comfortable and social acceptance more real and peace something in your everyday life. We want all those things. They're not wrong individually, but Paul is saying some of the Christians there, no notice, verse 18, many of the Christians there, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. It's not just a few people in this group. There are many people who have stopped living for Jesus. And he's writing in the whole of chapter 3 to say, Christian, that could be you. You could be tempted to live an easier life. You could be tempted to give in. You could be tempted to not pursue Jesus. So don't look anywhere else, first group. Don't look anywhere else where you think you can gain your righteousness, verse 1 to 11. Don't look anywhere else or anyone else who, who, tempts to, who will tempt you to say that you can live a mature life without hardship. To live a mature life without counting the cost of following Jesus. And don't be tempted to live in any way where you're tempted to belong to this world rather than the next, where your true citizenship is. Now let's be honest, it's very easy, isn't it, to believe in the gospel on a Sunday morning, to believe it 6 a.m. when you're up reading your Bibles with your coffee or tea. It's very easy to rejoice in the truth of the gospel at the weekend, but to live in such a way to avoid the cost that will come from the world. It's very easy to do that, to live beneath the ground. I did it for a few years in my later teenage years. I wanted to live for Jesus on a Sunday morning on a Friday evening, but not in the week. Why? Because the cost was too great. The risks were too many. And Paul is saying avoid living a Christian life like that. Because that's not the Christian life. Christian, uh, Christian living is chapter 2, not chapter 3. Those are the dangers. Avoid anything that takes you off the straight and narrow. 
Avoid anything, any teaching that tempts you to remain silent when you should speak up. Avoid anything that tempts you to not rock the boat when it needs to be rocked wisely. Real Christianity is always your maker making you new. The Spirit of God moving over the face of the deep at the very beginning saying, let there be light. And he's still in the business of doing that today. It's all a question of focus. Verse 12, you've been taken hold of. God's had grace and mercy on your life. But in verse 12, there's a second take hold of. Notice, I take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Don't worry, the second point is far shorter. It's all about focus. But secondly, it's about a Christian's focus. It's a Christian's focus. Paul tells us what a Christian is. Now, laundry is important at any time in the year. Laundry is increasingly important when it gets the autumn and you have to get stuff dry in any way you can without turning the central heating on or using the tumble dryer. It's a real challenge. And when the process of laundry happens, the laundry basket is full in our home quicker than you can empty it. And whenever you gather it up in a shirt or a jumper and you make the perilous journey downstairs in the darkness, because lights aren't used in our house anymore, and you get to the washing machine, you always look back and you think there's something that I tried to gather up everything I needed to and do it in one shot on Economy 7 at night, and yet there's always one sock that falls out and it's on the stairs. There's always one pair of undergarments that are left behind. Becoming a Christian is your whole life with nothing dropping out, being gathered up, and being put in another direction says the Apostle Paul. A Christian is someone whose whole life has been transformed and taken from one focus and been given another. We looked at this last week. This is what a Christian is. This is who a Christian has become. Your entire life is gathered up and not put in a washing machine, but it's transformed and taken in another direction. It's redirected. Verse 7 of chapter 3. Paul says, Everything, Everything in my life gathered up in his arms. Whatever I thought of as profit, I now see as loss. Paul says becoming a Christian is not gathering up additional knowledge. Paul says when you become a Christian, all things become new. Everything is gathered up by God and taken in a new direction. There's nothing off limit to the Holy Spirit. When you are transformed, you become a new person. Went to Specsavers on Tuesday. You see things by the Holy Spirit as if you have new lenses on. Everything is not just a, a little bit clearer. It's as if you were blind and now you see. And so Paul is saying from verse 7 to verse 9, that's where I used to live my life. That's where I camped out. But now my motive, my life, my drive, my view for everything is completely different. And it's laser guided on Jesus. He took hold of me so that I might take hold of him. I used to live to prove myself. I used to live to save myself. But now I've come to understand through God's grace that it's Christ who saves me alone. It's Christ who is my righteousness, not my own deeds. It's Christ who lived the life I should have lived, but I never could. And I did my uttermost. And he died the death that I should have died. As a Pharisee, Paul would have said, 
God takes hold of me because I, with all my goodness, takes hold of him. As a Christian, Paul says, Christ took hold of me. And so now I take hold of him. And it's changed everything. Everything in his life has been gathered up and taken in a new direction. How about you? Any socks on the stairs of your life? Any bits outside of Christ's authority and orb? Your entire life, every part of it, is now redirected to a new end. And what's the end? Verse 14, Paul says, One thing I'm after. What's the prize? Verse 10 tells us this is the prize. It's to know him. Look at these verses. Knowing Christ is what my life is about. Verse 8. To gain Christ is what I'm so passionate about now. I used to what was passionate about destroying the name of Christ, destroying the church of Christ, but now I'm passionate about knowing him. I want to be found in him. I want to know Christ. That's the goal. So Paul is not saying, I just want to increase my knowledge base. I just want to get a new bookshelf with more information. I just want to download some more data in my CPU. I want to know him. Now, there's a certain sort of practice that Paul is describing here. Is this familiar with you, Christian friend? You've been reading a book. You've been reading the Bible. There's been a time of prayer. And then suddenly, God speaks to you. Not in an audible way where the heavens are rent asunder, but God speaks to you by his spirit through his word. Perhaps you're in a time of crisis. And suddenly, God speaks to you. And he challenges you. He surprises you. He reassures you. He brings a sin to attention that makes you feel shame and guilt. And then he reminds you that that sin has been paid for once and for all. You're reading the Bible and you don't understand it. And then suddenly it becomes alive and the truth shines out. You're reading part of the Bible and it becomes a weight of reassurance upon your spirit so that fears just to banish from your spirit. Has that ever happened to you? Has your smugness and your pride been ripped asunder? If that has ever happened to you, that is what Paul is talking about. Not gaining huge amounts of data and information. It's about knowing Jesus personally about experiencing his weight and his worth and seeing his beauty and rejoicing in his name that's what Paul's talking about I want to know him I want to know more of him I want to know him intimately and personally I want to sense his presence I want to feel the warmth of his embrace and I'd do anything to get it now how do you know that you've experienced his power look at verse 12 again it's not mechanical it's not intellectual only It's experiential, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all this, like those who think they are already mature, or have I already been made perfect or mature. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of me. How do you know that you have the same appetites as the Apostle Paul? I think the key is it's a holy dissatisfaction it's a radical dissatisfaction at the level of experience and knowledge of God that you have this morning I know him but I long to know him more 
Look at the prayer that Paul prays back in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 9. This is my prayer for a whole church, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Verse 10, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. I pray for you that you would know God more. I pray for you that God will reveal his very nature to you afresh. Your stomach can be full of food and then it's emptied out. Your thirst can be significant and then it's quenched. But Paul is saying, I have a consuming passion that will never truly be quenched until I see him. I want to know him more. I want to enjoy him more. I want to be satisfied in him more. I look at the way I've lived my life and I'm ashamed of it. I want to enjoy him now, but I will one day see him and experience his embrace. And I want to know more of that right now. Now, what's getting in the way in your life for you to experience just something like that? Is it tiredness? Just tired. Get some rest. Is it boredom? Just don't know what to read. Is it lethargy? Is it the fact you're mad at God about something in your life? And the way you're dealing with that at the moment is just to hold him at arm's length. I'm too worried to go to God in prayer. My heart's got sucked into another group, like the groups mentioned. I, I just think I can live 10 feet above the ground. Or I just think that my appetites are, are disordered and Jesus has been relegated to position number three or four in my heart. What are you afraid of losing at the cost of pursuing Jesus more seriously, more earnestly, more prayerfully, more devotionally that the Apostle Paul is pointing us to? I've not already obtained all this, verse 12. I've not already been made perfect. I press on. And this is the Apostle Paul saying this, who saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. I read about a man this week, a Puritan pastor from the 1660s. He'd read his Bible, studied it for 50 years. And one day he sat down by a well at lunchtime, got out his bread roll, got out his drink, and he began to pray. And he wrote this down. Jesus Christ came to me and I sensed his presence. For over two hours, he poured into my heart love and truth. And I learned more at that lunchtime's blessing about Jesus and who I am than I have had in all the 50 years of Bible study. Now that is available to you if you pursue Jesus. Father, please show yourself to me in a real way. May I know more of your intimate love. Display to me more the truth of the gospel that I live by. Show me more. Help me to enjoy you more deeply. Help me to sense you in a real way. Do you ever pray anything like that? Do you have a longing, a taste bud for that? Have you gathered up all of your life, leaving nothing behind and given it to him? Have you done that? Are you pushing forward towards the prize? Do you have the scars of battle? Or are you living beneath the ground? The old hymn says, stand up, stand up for Jesus. The old hymn says, put on the armor of God. We don't sing those hymns anymore. Perhaps we should. Let's pray.